Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. As I said, there's uh, historically been a special relationship between the radical discipleship movements of the place now called California and that of the place now called Australia. And key to our movement building is creating alternative spaces at the intersection of seminary and sanctuary, streets and soil, soma and psyche. Spaces like the Grass Tree Gathering, spaces like the BKI. I hope we can um, become sister gatherings uh, moving forward. We've had this brief and beautiful uh, glimpse from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander settler friends from down under. For the rest of the morning, we're going to talk about California. I'm really excited to have our new uh, friend and colleague, Jonathan Cordero, uh, who a little later will introduce us to the story of this place, a story which is an extended saga of hospitality abused. When I was growing up in the late 1960s, my family used to go camping here on the Gaviota Coast, then ranch country. It remains one of the last relatively undeveloped areas of chaparral habitat left in coastal Southern California. It is also the heart of Chumash country. My time among those oak-studded canyons and pristine beaches made a huge psychic imprint on my adolescent consciousness. It connected me more to my sense of place as a fifth-generation Californian than any other experience I've ever had. And it was there that I had my first exposure as a suburban teenager growing up in an unchurched home to the legacy of missionary colonization. A gaggle of families were camped out in Tahiguas Canyon, former site I learned later of the Chumash village of Tahiwa. My dad, who was a half-Californio, Mexican-Californian, and loved to explore areas of old California, called our attention one day to a nearby Old Coast live oak. And we thought to ourselves as kids, oh great, let's go look at a tree. (laughs) But what we found when we got there was this. It was adorned with an arbor glyph, thought to be a Chumash rendering of a neophyte, that is to say a Chumash person brought into the mission system by force or by necessity, taking communion from a Spanish priest, probably dated sometime in the early 1800s. My oldest brother snapped this photo of the so-called Indian tree, which has hung on my wall for 40 years. I do not believe the tree exists any longer, though I wouldn't be able to find out since the canyon has long since been privatized as a trophy ranch. But the legacy this image represents lingers and brings us to our scripture study today. Luke's version of Jesus' so-called missionary instructions does not come up in the year C lectionary, but it surely haunts the consciousness of Christendom the world over. We'll look at this text in some detail, but the short version of this study is simply this. Had Christians observed these simple guidelines for how to interact with other people and places, the history of the world would be profoundly different. Jesus could not have been clearer 
or more unequivocal in these marching orders. But for the most part, our ancestors in the faith have ignored them. And consequently, there's been hell to pay. A legacy of domination and supremacy and genocide tattooed like an arborglyph on the centuries and on every land around this great earth mother. And again, as I said yesterday, we would-be radical Christians would like to disassociate from this history and its legacy as if our privileges aren't rooted in it. But we think a better way is to name it, to face it, in order to exercise what Elaine likes to call responsibility, the ability to respond, as opposed to be paralyzed or fragile or weepy which means fully embracing the great and difficult historic work of healing and repair, which vocation, as we said on Monday night, is the core subtext of this year's BKI and next year's. Uh, I'm obviously not going to try to rehearse the long and complex history of Christian missions, but I do want to make a couple of basic observations. First, it seems important to acknowledge that the spread of Christianity across time to millennia and space, the entire globe, and cultures, almost none untouched, hasn't always and everywhere been synonymous with conquest and colonization. Because if we assume, assume some sort of simple one-dimensional story, we miss the amazing episodes in which the gospel spread organically and peaceably and not by white folk. But obviously, secondly, it is equally important to acknowledge the much harder fact that all too often and all too ubiquitously Christian missions have fused cross and sword, conversion and conquest, evangelization and subjugation. Because of this apostasy, the history of contact between indigenous and settler cultures in, Ameri in the Americas, in Canada, in Australia, is laced with betrayal and historical violation. And this morning, Jonathan's going to overview the particular and painful contours of that story here in California. Thirdly, it seems important also to acknowledge that Christianity is intrinsically mission-driven. I see that went over well. Before everybody freaks out, <laughs> let's for a moment define mission not as imposing religious conversion on cultural others, but generically. That is, mission arises from a highly convictional engagement with the world. It emerges from the evangelical impulse of anyone who has a decisive critique of the way the world is and a vibrant vision of the way the world could be. So, for example, to take examples of secular missionary movements that have changed our world and from which we all have benefited, this would include abolitionists with a vision of the end of slavery, both in the 19th century and again today. It would include labor activists with a vision of worker enfranchisement, again, both in the last century and our own. It would include, in Indian country, the ghost dance movement at the end of the 19th century, led by a prophetic evangelist who called native people to defy the US government's attempts to close the frontier and disappear Native American culture. 
and instead to reground themselves in the old ways. A Shoshone, Edith's people, Wovoka. It would include, throughout the 20th century, revolutionary movements which militantly pursued a vision of overthrowing colonial regimes, from Lenin to Fidel to Muslim insurgents today. It would include feminists with a vision of gender equality, still struggling today for fundamental uh, gender equity. All of these social movements and many others we could name have spread with missionary fervor and often through classic missionary tactics such as preaching and cajoling and moral shaming and itinerant organizing. Of course, there are other examples of secular missionarizing, missionizing that are far less sanguine to us. The most obvious example is the way in which the modern state has aggressively spread the gospel of war-making and recruiting civilians to become soldiers. In fact, the missionary spread of imperialism and its vision of racial superiority was secularized early on in the American experience. The doctrine of discovery of medieval times in the 19th century morphed into the thoroughly secular ideology of progress as manifest destiny. How many of you have seen this very famous image before? About half. Um, I know it seems like high 19th century colonial art. Actually, it was a railroad recruiting poster. It was issued shortly after completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869 that sought to assure white Eastern Americans that it was now safe to settle in the far west, Indian country. It unabashedly celebrates the inexorable march of white domination over the continent. Notice in the foreground, this march is led appropriately by militia and followed closely by resource extractors and then farmers accompanied by not one but two locomotives, right? After all, this is a railroad recruiting poster. The sun rises behind them over the Mississippi River. If you want to hear some really interesting reflections about the Mississippi River as the gateway to the colonial holocaust, I really recommend Rose Berger's new book of poetry about Saarinen's Arch in St. Louis. It's in our bookstore, and Rose is here, and it's a fabulous meditation on this story. Uh, so the sun rises behind the Mississippi while indigenous people, do you see it, together with the buffalo and the bear, are fleeing west into darkness. Notice the secular symbolism. That's not an angel in the middle. It's the mythic image of Columbia, the feminized version of Columbus the goddess of liberty and the personification of America. She's laying telegraph wire with her left hand, or maybe it's a smart-ass phone, I don't know. And that's not a Bible in her right hand, friends. It's a school book. Here's another slightly uh, earlier version of this missionary vision, which hangs to this day in the U.S. Capitol. At the top, a bald eagle holds a banner reading, Westward the course of empire takes its way. And at the bottom is the goal, the Golden Gate and the Pacific, symbolizing the imperial agenda of sea to shining sea. At the corners are medallion portraits of Daniel Boone and William Clark. On the sides are iconograph 
iconographic motifs of Hercules and Moses and Columbus and the three magi. Just kind of covering all the bases there. <laughs> it was painted by an immigrant German artist during the darkest days of the Civil War. Needless to say, these are not narratives of people looking for an invitation or relying on hospitality. There's many such romanticized settler mythologies about the theft of North American indigenous lands that adorn public buildings around the country. Perhaps tomorrow Jim Bear will talk about his struggle to get this one taken down in the Minnesota State Capitol. But these public projections of a devised and dismembered history aren't just in our past, friends. Take the thoroughly capitalist ideology of manifest destiny that persists, especially in the presumptuous U.S. corporations roaming the globe in search of resources to extract and markets to dominate. Don't you think it's fair to say that the archetypal 21st century American corporate business person traveling abroad has far fewer scruples about exploiting people and land than the worst ethnocentric Christian missionary of the 19th century? Let's keep it real. My point is all, that all powerful historical social movements are missionary, whether religious or not, for good and for ill. The early Christians, for their part, had a vision of a kingdom that was an alternative to the Roman Empire, a vision of grace, of radical equality, of mutual aid and healing. Who wouldn't want to spread that vision of liberation and wholeness? of helping free folk in bondage, to an, uh, in bondage to an oppressive, dehumanizing social order. They called it, as does the Apostle Paul here in Luke's story of Acts, good news, using the Greek term evangelion. And so it was to poor folks and slaves who were dominated by Rome's extractive economy. If you want to learn more about Paul as a missionary of liberation, come hear Sylvia Kiesmott talk this afternoon about her and her husband's um, amazing new book, Romans Disarmed, at our Book Buzz conversation. And look later this year for another awesome study of Paul as a movement builder of dissidents by Daniel Udshorn. Daniel, where are you? Daniel and um, uh, Sylvia, if you would please stand as our Pauline scholars in the midst. There's Daniel back there. Thanks for your work. The Jesus Movement's choice of Evangelion was polemical and political because it was a technical term of Roman propaganda. It was Caesar's public relations machine that boasted that it was the Pax Romana and Caesar's grace that brought good news to the world. Every city in the Eastern Empire had to keep a festival for the Evangelia and offer sacrifices on the emperor's behalf of all Vocabulary that early Christians would take this one? Roman propaganda was everywhere, including on everyday coins such as this denarius, which features the goddess Providentia holding a globe in her right hand and a scepter in her left, symbolizing world sovereignty. Remember the globe in Columbus' hand that we looked at yesterday or Monday? Um, written in Latin, eternitas. You all know what that means. So when you read about eternal life in the New Testament, you better understand it's a polemical term. This is not Rome's hegemony forever. 
This is the horizons of history opening back up by God's grace. Rescued from imperial lockdown. The early Christian good news was, of course, challenging, not parroting, imperial propaganda announcing the restoration of creator's true sovereignty through the alternative Kyrios, Lord Christ. In other words, the early Christians were picking a fight with empire. It was a battle of missionary visions in which evangelists like Paul usually ended up in jail, as he says here. All of this to say, friends, that being mission-driven is not the problem per se. The critical question for mission is, for what? And how? And by whom? And where? And in whose interests? In the case of Christianity, a movement that began as a grassroots mission from below, literally from the catacombs, a mission from below for liberation from empire became, after Constantine, increasingly a project of imperial conquest from above, in the name of the church now. In a millennium after Constantine, in late medieval Europe, this pervasive mission of hegemonic Expansion began to be fused with the powerful mythologies of ethnic superiority as outlined in a real classic book uh, by Ronald Sanders, Lost Tribes and Promised Lands, The Origins of American Racism, published in and for the Columbus Quincentenary Year of 1992. This animating ideology was then codified by papal pronunciamientos in the doctrine of discovery, as we'll see tonight, as the seed of all manner of white supremacist conceits such as this one. The notion that the Europeans' arrival in the, in the New World, oh, sorry, there we go. Europeans' arrival in the New, Euro, New World was a religious epiphany, as narrated in Joshua Shaw's Coming of the White Man, 1850. In this piece, indigenous people are blinded by and cower before the heavenly sunrise light. Do you see that theme occurring? The light coming from the east? Um, in the form of a tall ship in the distance. Above them, however, because this is the mid-19th century and you've got to rationalize it and naturalize it, are flying geese representing natural migration patterns. <clears throat> Beginning with Columbus, obviously, 500 years of missions as conquest, as Randy heroically tried to uh, overview for us in a short time yesterday morning, uh, missions as conquest, both religious and secular, left no corner of the world untouched. Our churches still have yet to come to terms with this legacy. However, the impact of the global decolonization movement of the mid-20th century and the growing indigenization of many churches, under the impact of that, some Western Christian leaders did begin to rethink this missionary legacy. So this was a battle, friends, that was fought in the 50s and 60s and 70s, before many of us were born. And it is a, a legacy of struggle on whose shoulders we stand, whether we acknowledge it or not. This led the World Council of Churches to call in the early 1970s for a moratorium on Christian missions around the world. Did you know that? 
An East uh, Indian theologian and former associate general secretary of the WCC put it this way in 1974. Today, it is economic imperialism or neocolonialism that is the pattern of missions. So now I say the mission of the church is the greatest enemy of the gospel. And you thought you were radical. This, of course, sparked a lively debate and soon caused yet another dramatic split between mainstream churches and evangelicals around the world since, for evangelicals, soul winning is the raison d'etre of being Christian. This is a split we're still trying to navigate. But the issues were and are real. So for any mission-driven cause, both religious and political, pressing a critique and a good news alternative is one thing, a necessary thing. But imposing the problem analysis and then imposing the solution, especially by military or economic or cultural force, well, that's quite another thing. So the real question is, how can mission-driven movements aiming for the former guard against the latter? Are you with me? Is this making any sense? The key, according to our gospel uh, text today, is hospitality, given and received. The perverted gospel of colonization was and is founded upon a colonization of the gospel. That is, elaborate theological and political systems that ignore or rationalize away the clear instructions Jesus gave to his peeps. So as part of pursuing a radical analysis this week, going back to the roots of our tradition to see where we went wrong, here's another good place to start. Now Luke is quite interested in Jesus' missionary instructions. He gives them here in chapter 9 in the sending out of the 12. He gives them again um, in chapter 10 in the sending out of the 70, which is a little more elaborate and detailed. We'll look at the shorter version. As Brooke said so concisely in her devotional this morning, radical hospitality was and is part of the fabric of indigenous culture. So these instructions are just yet another indication of the indigenous Jesus. It's all about hospitality. Here are the salient points of this very basic instruction. First, note that the what of the mission is twofold to proclaim the alternative socio-political order called the kingdom of God, and to confront demons and cure diseases. The latter aspect is reiterated in the last phrase of verse 1 as healing the weak, which connotes both physical and socio-economic vulnerability. These same two aspects are then narrated in the concluding part of the instruction as a framing technique. Repetition is the key to pedagogy. Repetition is the key to pedagogy. <laughs> Verse 6 now includes that mention of good news. At face value, there's nothing objectionable about this mission, especially given that every human social order contains elements of both oppression and sickness. This brings us to the first how. The significance of verse 3 is clear and cannot be overstated. Don't carry your baggage into your host community. This is not just about traveling light like an anarcho-primitivist with a backpack. It's about traveling vulnerably. 
Forbidding staff and bag means you are in liminal space, you are in dependent space, you are not in control. Jesus' strategy here, interestingly, for those familiar with the left side of the Bible, uh, where we rarely dare to tread, uh, contrasts starkly with the old story of David. Remember that story in which David approaches Goliath with a staff and a bag full of five deadly stones? In other words, David approaches ready to do battle. Too often in Western missionary history, missionary baggage was weaponized because the ultimate intent was not to heal, but to defeat. Forsaking bread and money, well, that's pretty straightforward. These are means of sustenance. Not to be self-sufficient guarantees the dependence of the missionary upon those she or he is approaching, which ensures that the host, not the guest, retains the upper hand. This is a power analysis. Having only one tunic is kind of interesting. In antiquity, most peasants wouldn't have had a change of clothes. Um, Moreover, in Luke 3.11, earlier in this story, John the Baptist exhorted listeners, if you have two coats, give one to the poor. So the assumption is that the missionaries have already distributed their own surplus rather than bringing it with them in a U-Haul. And if the missionary doesn't have an extra tunic, doesn't that mean that eventually she'll have to adopt the clothing of their hosts? You see, costumes matter. They're a way of either fitting in or remaining apart. The history of the colonial era suggests that Christian missionaries got it exactly bass-ackward. Not only did we bring trunks full of our own shit and presuppositions, but we brought our clothes, we brought our costumes, and we demanded that the people we, who were our hosts wear our clothes to impose everything about our culture on native guests. How different history would have been had Christians practiced a disrobed gospel, naked and unashamed. At the center of this teaching is the instruction to settle in a home that welcomes you. The implication here is that one must stay where one has traveled too long enough to truly understand the new place and people. That can take a while. That can take a lifetime. Again, this is a hedge on the temptation to impose how different history would have been had these simple guidelines been heeded. Of course, there must be a local host willing to provide hospitality. Better be on good behavior. This instruction is expanded in chapter 10. Don't move from house to house. Eat what you're served and leave only the blessing of peace on the house that welcomes you. In other words, don't look for a better deal. Don't demand special treatment. Eat local. Be grateful. And second, says Jesus, the missionary must remain a guest without a settlement footprint of expansion. Stay there, says Jesus, and leave from there. Ah, there's the key. It's not presumed that we are here to stay. Here's the famous lament, you know it, of the colonized. It rings in our ears, attributed to Jomo Kenyatta, though often quoted by Desmond Tutu. What we were supposed to do, 
according to Jesus, was to offer the gift of healing and good news and move the hell on. Or to stay if asked. And on the terms of the host. Oh, how different history would have been. The final instruction is that interesting ritual of what to do if the missionary is not welcomed, which is included because this is always and everywhere a real possibility. In that case, says Jesus, leave. Don't retaliate. Don't force yourself on the host. Don't take over their frickin' house. Just move on down the line. Oh, how different things would be. The shaking off of the dust is clearly a symbolic gesture that is important to Luke. Since it appears several times in Acts, Paul leaves both Iconium and later Corinth in such a fashion, though note that the same demonstration is used against him by his Jewish opponents in Jerusalem. That dust can shake both ways, yo. Jesus identifies this dust shaking as a form of protest in chapter 10, verse 11, where he associates the rejection of the traveler with Sodom. Because the great sin of Sodom, contrary to how most Christians understand that old tale, was lack of hospitality to strangers. In Genesis 19, the Sodomites refuse and then abuse the very angels that Abram and Sarai had welcomed in Genesis 18. So Jesus is saying, yeah, Inhospitality is a serious problem. This is indigenous Jesus understanding that lack of hospitality is a problem, especially when you're on the road. But all you can do is point it out. If folks don't have ears to hear, move on. Done and dusted, so to speak. The tragic fact is, however, that newly arriving Europeans in the New World almost always initially encountered generous hospitality from indigenous peoples they met, Randy said it yesterday, Brooke said it again today, because welcoming strangers was and is endemic in native culture. The problem was that native hospitality very soon was abused by European guests because their goal was not community but conquest. Usurpation became theft, became profiteering. It's absolutely mind-boggling. So this is Jesus... Um, this is Jesus' teaching. It has a chiastic structure that you see here, which draws attention to the middle verse for the command to respect the host, the command to respect the host, the command to respect the host by living within the limits of the host's capacity for and willingness to extend hospitality, which is exactly what our ancestors did not do. Jesus' instructions were simple, they were clear, they were timeless, and how different, how different, how different history would have been had we paid attention. So what does it mean to go back to these radical roots in our search for the road not taken by our predecessors in the faith? Maybe it's indigenous people who have to do the shaking of the dust from their feet in protest of settler violations of the rules of hospitality. This is Charles Hilliard. Um, sorry. This is Charles Hilliard's um, young, uh, young Ojibwe artist who in 2014 expressed this sentiment. Um, Bob Tubles turned me on to this. This is his parody of the John Gast icon we looked at earlier. It reverses the direction of manifest destiny, pushing back on what Europeans have done to Turtle Island. The buffalo are returning. It's a fabulous piece. 
As for us settler Christians, we need to figure out how to be accountable to this legacy, how to heal it, and how to embrace again Jesus' clear counsel, practicing only a disrobed style of mission, bringing good news of an alternative to empire, and healing the weak. This poignant picture captures Shumash musicians at Mission San Buenaventura in 1873, century and a half ago. The second man from the left is Juan de Jesus Tumamite, Julie's great-grandfather. He was singing his people's songs even when forced to wear missionary clothes and speak the missionary's language. And Julie is still singing those songs. May we work for the day when indigenous settler and immigrant can sit together and learn each other's songs in respect and justice. Because that, that would be good news. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.